All right, Luke chapter 21, verses 29 through 38. Let's go ahead and read it. It says, And Jesus spoke to them a parable. He says, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So Jesus is continuing his ministry. He's not stopping. He's, he's almost, in a sense, going even harder at this point, even though this is the last week of his life. And even though he knows this is the last week of his life, and he's going to lay, lay it down for us. And so here in verse 29, he starts to speak of them and speak to them of a parable. And he speaks and he shares of the fig tree and just how, how simply we can understand the, the changing of the seasons just by looking at nature. Right? Nature doesn't change in of itself. It does what it does. And so when seasons come around, it's the same as it is every year. Right? And so for us, we know, you know spring is rolling around when the flowers start blooming. We know summer's coming because it gets butt hot out. We know winter's coming right? because everything, or fall is coming because you know, the trees start to wither. They start to brown. You know, and then we know winter's coming. There, there's signs of these seasons that are coming. And I don't think there's anything greater or deeper other than Jesus basically saying, you can see these signs, and once you see these signs, you simply know that something, something's coming, right? Something as simple as the fig tree, that when it's already budding, you know that summer is near. You know, and there's some commentators, some teachers who think that this is a representation specifically with the fig tree, that it represents Israel. I don't know if it's that deep, to be honest. I think it's just showing us, and Jesus is telling us, that when you see these signs that he's already told us about, that the time is near, that it's coming, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that Christ is coming, right? It's evident when you see the new leaves and the blooms and the fig trees, especially with them. They, they understood the fig tree. They had it around them in their time or in their, their geography. They knew that summer was near, right, that it was already here, that it was beginning, and so again, with these signs, when we view them, the ones that Christ gave us, we know that his coming is beginning. The word translated near here in the Greek, it means already beginning to come to pass. And the King James, anybody have the King James version on them? I like how it says, thank you. It says, uh, nigh at hand, right? It's here. It's coming. And what are the signs that Jesus mentioned? Well, we can look here in verse 8. Look in verse 8. There's going to be false messiahs. In verse 9, we see of wars. In verse 11, earthquakes, famines, diseases, things in the sky. In verse 12, we see persecution. In verse 20, we see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. In verse 25, we see signs in the heavens. And in verse 26, we see fear. That fear is going to plague the world. And so he says, look at the fig tree and all the trees, and when they're already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. And he says, so you also, 
Here's where it segues. When you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Again, you see the fig tree and it's blooming, summer's coming. You see these signs happening in the world, well, know that Jesus Christ is coming, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that it's near. And now we got to look at this kind of twofold because the expression of the kingdom of God, we see it often throughout the Gospels. We see it in the present tense and we see it in the future tense. And then you start to question, well, which one is it, Jesus? Is the kingdom of God here? Is it now? Right, because John says it, right? He says, repent for the kingdom of God is here. Okay, well, then Jesus starts to talk about and share as he teaches, well, the kingdom of God is, is, is in the future. It's not now. What are you looking for? It's coming later. We see this in, I think it's in Luke chapter 17 when we studied that one point. But here's, here's the kicker, and here's how we have to understand it, is that it's used in two ways. Sometimes it's, it's represented as in the present, and sometimes it's also repre- represented as in the future. And that doesn't mean that, that it's, it's any different. Here, here's how I understand it. When Christ came, he is the kingdom of God, right? When he came, Jesus Christ, like, because again, what, how do you define a kingdom? What makes a kingdom a kingdom? Think of it that way. Isn't it essentially the king, right? I mean, so if Jesus is the king, well, the kingdom is here. That's so when John says, you know, the kingdom's here, well, he's speaking of Jesus. Jesus was here in this very moment. And then when Jesus left and he ascended back into heaven after his resurrection, he said, I don't leave you alone, but I leave you with a helper, speaking of the spirit of God. So in the, in the spiritual sense, the kingdom of God is already here because we have the Holy Spirit. But there is also a physical sense where in the future, he's going to come and establish his kingdom when he comes to reign here on earth. So there's two ways to look at this to understand this again. There's the physical, and there's the spiritual. There's the present and the future, and they all work hand in hand, right? In the Bible, we often see tensions between the partial or the complete or the initial and the final or the now and the future. It's like Jesus has already come to start his kingdom. It's here and now, but it's not going to be finalized, and it's not going to be completed until he comes again. Right? So it's, it's here now, but it's also in the future. It's, it's in the spiritual, but it's also in the physical. And so what is the kingdom of God? I want to look at this really quick. There's a few passages in Scripture that show us that God is obviously the king. He is the monarch of all creation. Right? Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. God is king over everything. And the Bible describes him as the king of kings. Right? We have a few kings here on earth but they are nothing. They are created by the true king. And King Nebuchadnezzar declares in Daniel chapter 4, verse 3, says his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And now if there was anyone to proclaim that they were the king, it would be Nebuchadnezzar. And if there was anyone to proclaim that God is the true king and that his kingdom is eternal, it would also be Nebuchadnezzar because he is the one who had the most power in the whole earth and God quickly humbled him. And he quickly lowered him to the place of an animal. I don't know if you guys remember this in Daniel chapter 3 and 4, or or I think it's 4 and 5, sorry, where he became an animal and a beast of the fields for, I think, seven years until God brought him back. And and Nebuchadnezzar realized at that, not a moment, but through that process that God is the king. Because Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself. He thought he was the king of kings until he realized that he was but just the creation of the creator who is the true king of kings. And so he was... 
he was able and faithful to say that his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And so again, the kingdom of God is it's twofold. The kingdom of God is a spiritual rule over the hearts and the lives of those who willingly submit to God as the authority, as king. So again, in this sense, the kingdom of God is spiritual. Just as Jesus said that his kingdom was not of this world in John 18, verse 36, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. So the kingdom is, is spiritual, right? And he even talks about if those who want to be a part of the kingdom have to repent. That's the necessary process of being a part of the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It says, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. You don't just get to go in for the sake of going in. John chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, Jesus answered and he said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which was born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, it says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. You want to enter and be a part of the kingdom of God? Well, you've got to repent. You have to be born again. Because there is the spiritual aspect to this kingdom, and God is the king. And for us to be a part of that, you have to be born again. Right? He says, you must be born of, of um, what does he say in John? You must be born of flesh, water, and spirit. You must be born of water and spirit. There's another sense in which the kingdom of God is used in scripture, and it's the physical aspect of it. It's the, the literal rule of Christ on the earth during the millennial reign. And Daniel, Daniel says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Again, it's like God has started his kingdom. It's not of this world because it's spiritual. It's, it's in his people. It's by the spirit of God. But then there will be a, a complete fulfillment of that when he comes back to reign. It's kind of like salvation. There's kind of like a process to this. Now we know when we're born again, like we are, we are in the kingdom of God. We are saved, we are redeemed. Like nobody can pluck us out of God's hand, right? But, but then there's this process that we have in this life where we, we are obedient to Christ. We submit to him, right? We, we are constantly being sanctified for his purpose. We work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling, Right? But we're constantly battling like sin in the flesh still, right? Even though we're saved from it. But there, there, it's, salvation is not done in its totality yet. It won't be finalized and finished until we stand before our king, and that's when we'll, we'll see the completeness of it, the completeness of our salvation where it's in its, its glory. Right? Where no longer will I even have this battle between the flesh and the spirit. It'll just be all spirit. Right? So there is a finality to that. Like, it started now, but there's a finality to it. The same thing with the kingdom of God. There's, it started, but there's going to be a finality to it. And so the kingdom of God, again, it began with his first coming, and it will find its fulfillment at his second coming. And remember, his second coming is distinct from when he comes and he takes the church. Right? Or what we would call, as, you know, as Christians, we call the rapture in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Right? He's going to come and he's going to take the church. And then through that, there's going to be the beginning of the seven years of tribulation. Right? Where God is going to pour his wrath out because it's due. Because he's just. 
Uh, but because he's loving, he's given us a way of an escape, as he says here at the end of this chapter. And for you and I, there, there's that way of an escape. But there will be seven years of, of judgment. And then after the seventh year, Christ is going to come back. Again, this is where we're going to see him establish himself as king. He's going to come as a conquering king. So in verse 32, Jesus says, again, as he continues this, this thought of the kingdom of God drawing near, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And so this, this is a little confusing, this verse in 32, because there's many commentators, teachers who may teach this completely different, um, because there's different ways of looking at this, there's different understandings of it when it comes to this word generation. But in the Greek, the, me, the word here means, the word is not used in just one way in scripture. It can mean various things. It can mean descendants of a common ancestor. It can mean a set of people born at the same time, right? Because we have like Gen Z, Gen Y, is it Gen Y? Um, Gen X, boomers, millennials, we have all these, right? Those are different generations. These are people born at the same time. There's usually like a 15-year period between those. The third way that this, this word is often used is the period of time occupied by such a set of people, uh, often the sense of successive sets of people. Um, so this really could be seen, and I think there's two ways that we can really look at this, when it says that this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Okay, the first one, the first way we could look at this is Jesus is saying that the end will, will come not to another type of people, right? So basically, the type of people that he's describing, this generation that he's describing, is just sinners, people like you and I. So from the time that Jesus says this to now, we are that generation, even though 2,000 years have elapsed, right? So that's one way that we can look at this. So this generation, as Jesus speaks in verse 32, it includes you and me. I think we can look at it this way. There's a second way that we can look at it, which I think we can also probably look at it the same way. This generation is those that see these exact signs take place that Jesus has described here in chapter 21. That is the generation, right? Those who will see these signs, but they will also see the very end. So Jesus may be somewhat implying that and promising us, like he does in Matthew 24, 21, that the tribulation is not going to last long, it's not going to be forever, that it's not going to be prolonged. So there's going to be this, this short gap. I don't know how long the time period is, but from those who see the signs, those same people who see the signs will be the same people who will also see the very end. Those are two ways that we can look at it here. I don't think it really changes anything at this point, but I think we can trust in the Lord. And then what he says here, that, that he's going to be faithful to provide those people who trust in him a way out, He's going to be faithful not to prolong anything, right? Jesus wants us to see that these events are coming and that they are certain. That Jesus' words, what he says happens every single time. You know, you, you ever, like, doubt the Bible? Go read some verses. Go read some of um, Proverbs and, and stuff like that, and you'll find out very quickly that the words of God do not fail, that they're true. You can test it, and it will find itself faithful all the time, every time. And on top of that, not, as, not only is the word of God always faithful and true, but Christ says that his words will never pass away, ever. Nothing could ever take it away. 
which really puts into perspective that these are the words of God, right? He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words by no means will pass away. So he declares that these words are more certain than even earth and heaven itself. You know, I mean, what's, what's more faithful and certain than the sun rising every morning, right? Like, I don't go to bed at night hoping and praying and wishing that, man, I, I really, really hope the sun comes up in the morning. You ever done that? No, just because it does what it does. It, it rises every morning. And there will be a day when that doesn't happen, and something that will last greater than that is God's word. And yet we put so much trust and faith in the things of this world and the things beyond this world that, you know, we start looking at this, the sky and the heavens, and yet Jesus says, what's more faithful and what you should really trust and believe in is my words because they are certain and they're eternal. And so he's going to go on. He's going to say a few more things just to get us prepared and to be watchful. But I want to go back really quick to this portion in verse 29 where he says, look at the fig tree. And I don't want to just brush over this too quickly because as we're studying through the Song of Solomon, many of you guys are, are joining us on Wednesday night's Song of Solomon. And as we're going to go into it this Wednesday, it's ironic that they tie in this well. Um, we're going to be in verses uh, 10 through 13. And in verses 10 through 13, uh, Solomon is speaking to his, his beloved or, or to his, uh, the Shulamite right, to his, his lady, and he's coming to her, and he's basically saying, look, you know, this, the, the, the rain is gone, you know, all these things are gone, and now spring is here, winter is past, the birds are chirping, the flowers are blooming, and he says, come away with me, and let's go, and it's so interesting, again, I, and I, I find it interesting, I don't want to play too much into it, um, but I want to read it to you really quick, because he says here, look at the fig tree, now, obviously, the fig tree was just something that was understood in their culture, or not their culture, but their uh, geography, right? It was in their climate. But then we see the same thing about the fig tree here in Song of Solomon in chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. I'll read it to you really quick. She says, My beloved spake, uh, spake, I put King James. Let me go find the new King James. <laughs> Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. My beloved spoke and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. So interesting that Solomon would say to, the, to this woman, to the Shulamite woman, hey, the fig trees, they're blooming, right? They're green. It's, it's showing us and it's signifying that, again, the rain has come, winter has passed, and now here's spring, here's summer. And he says, let's rise up and let's, let's go away. And so as, we, as we've been studying through, we see that there is a similarity in a picture of the Song of Solomon when it comes to Solomon and the woman, as there is with a husband and a wife, as there is with Jesus and the church right? Summer is here. Jesus says it, right? He says, look at the fig tree. And he says, you know, summer is now near. This speaks of the kingdom of God being near. So if summer is near, it means the kingdom of God is near. Solomon takes the woman away in the same way that Christ would take his church away when summer draws near, when the kingdom of God draws near. 
when the wrath of God in the seven-year tribulation comes. And so again, we look at this as the picture of Jesus in the church. And Jesus takes us away. And again, he even says here in verse 36, he says, pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things. Well, to escape what? What is he gonna, what is he gonna do? He's gonna tell us to arise my love and come away with me. And he does that for the church, right? Because there's the kingdom of God is near so that you can escape all these things that are about to come to pass because it's not due for you. Solomon would not hurt and harm the Shulamite woman. A husband would not hurt and harm his wife, right? That is the instructions that God has given to the husband to love her the way that Christ loved the church, to treat her as if she was his own body. And nobody ever hurts their own body. And so in the same way, Jesus would never harm his church. He would never harm his people, right? I mean, that is, that is the whole purpose of the gospel, right? To free us from that, to save us from what is rightfully due for us. So he says, come away with me. And we see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he raptures the church. So I've just found that interesting. We'll study that a little bit more on Wednesday night and get a little more in depth in that. But here I want to encourage you back again in verse 33 where he says, heaven and earth will, will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And I want to encourage you to really count on and invest in the things that will last. And we're going to see this in a moment when he talks about the things of this life and how they can just take up our time and our attention and our purpose. And he says, look, what is important, what lasts? Because listen, the older I get, I realize the importance of things in a greater aspect. I, I like things that last longer. You know, when you're, when you're at your age, you think that, okay, there's an eternity ahead of me, you know, um, as I got older, I liked purchasing things. I really liked purchasing things that would last a lifetime. Like, it was, it's just amazing. I love buying tools, like a hammer. I just expect it to, to last a lifetime. I hate buying paper towels because I know they'll last, like, a day and a half. Yeah, I hate that. I love things that will last. And so I think in the spiritual sense, you know, we have to be mindful of that, too, that we invest and we count on things that will last. And now the word of God is that thing that Jesus says that will last. I mean, how much priority and emphasis do we put in the word of God and not just reading the word of God, but obeying it and living it, right? That is what's going to last. Your, your degree that you're going to get one day, it'll be helpful. It'll be nice. I don't want to diminish it in any way, but it will not last like the word of God does. Your, uh, even your own family, your career, whatever you want to invest in, you know, the only thing that is truly going to last and sustain is the Word of God. Jesus puts it this way when it comes to the Word of God and how it must be our foundation, how it must be something that not only do we just hear and listen to, but something that we obey and live. He says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, speaking of the Word of God, and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on a rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, he'll be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. 
So trust in the word of God and live by it. And then Jesus warns us in verse 34 to take heed to ourselves. He says, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. To take heed means to, to devote thought and effort to, to give attention to, and to, to be weighed down. It speaks of being overcharged. It's to press down as if a weight is upon you or a burden. It speaks of minds that lose their alertness. He says, when you start to focus on the things of the world, it brings about this weight upon not just your shoulders, but upon your heart. He says, you'll be, you'll be overburdened, right? You lose alertness, you lose attention to what is truly important, right? You, you are no longer looking for the coming of your king, but you're living as if you are your own king. He says, make sure that you, you avoid the risks, again, that you're not carousing. What does carousing mean? Well, it speaks of like the aftermath of being drunk, you know, the, the being unstable. He says, the carousing, the drunkenness, and then he mentions the cares of this life. The cares of this life. He says, take heed that you, you don't, you're not distracted by these things. Because these things, I think, can dull our senses. They can dull our priorities. They can dull our, our purpose. We can be so preoccupied with life. I mean, my goodness, we all fall into this trap. There's no one who's beyond this trap, whether that be a pastor or someone that you might think wouldn't be. We are all susceptible to this. And there's an, a warning and encouragement to not fall into this. That we don't just live our lives for the fun of the next day and the next vacation and the next thing, the next person. He says the cares of this life is something that can bring and weigh down our own hearts that, that the day will come and it will be unexpected to us. Right? We can be preoccupied with families, jobs, relationships. Nowadays, self-improvement, it's all about yourself, myself. We can be occupied with education, vacations, and even bad things like suffering and sickness and death. Things that take us off, take our mind off of Christ, our focus off of Christ. It's so easy. It's so easy when Jesus revolves, how do I say this? Because I'm, I'm semi-dyslexic. Is it good when Jesus revolves around our lives or our lives revolve around Jesus? Which one is it? When our lives revolve around Jesus, yes. But we make it so that Jesus revolves around our lives, right? So what, what, what takes precedence over Jesus? Well, vacations and uh, self-care and uh, kids. You know, obviously you don't have kids, but that's what your parents do is they put you ahead of Christ, which ultimately just messes all things up. Uh, for you guys, it's relationships, it's other things. You get the point. You know what it is in your own life. And so when that happens, it's, it's not how God created us. And so we don't function the right way. We don't do things the best way. And then Jesus says here, you're not going to be expecting my coming. He says you're going to be so dull and preoccupied with the things of this life, the cares of this life. He says that the day will come on you unexpectedly. He says, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Have you guys ever caught something, an animal, a bug, I don't know, with a trap, a rat, right? Well, how does a trap work? How does a snare work? Well, the main way that it works is that it's quick and it's unexpected, right? If you ever caught a mouse with a mouse trap, you get that. Again, it's a device that it's unexpected. He says, like a trap. He says, 
when I come, it will be like that. It'll be quick and it'll be unexpected. And Jesus warns us that we are not the people who would be caught unexpected, that we would think that it, you know, that it would be unexpected to us. You don't want to be that animal, right, that is caught in a snare. And so he emphasizes here the importance of just being ready, being alert, right? We have to be alert. And so he says this because the second coming of Jesus has two distinct aspects, and we've talked about this. The second coming of Jesus in its totality is when he comes after the seven-year tribulation. He's going to make an appearance. But the first part of it, where there is no appearance of Jesus, is when he comes suddenly and unexpectedly as a snare. And it will be in a time of peace, in a time of safety. That's when he's going to come and he's going to take the church. But again, the second time that he comes, it's going to come with great anticipation. It's a world that's almost destroyed by the judgment of God, with Jesus coming as the king to this earth with his people from heaven. But before that first part of it comes, before Jesus comes for the church, again, he wants us to understand that it comes unexpectedly. He wants us to be on alert. And there's other occasions and parables where he warns his disciples, uh, you know, where the master comes in the middle of the night, the thief comes in the middle of the night. He talks about the faithful and the wise servants. He even talks about the faithful, the wise and foolish virgins, the ones who were waiting for the bridegroom to appear and the ones who weren't waiting or weren't waiting and they were doing whatever. They were busy with the cares of this life. And what ends up happening is the bridegroom comes unexpectedly and they're like, oh, snap, let's get our stuff together. I don't have any oil. I don't have my lamp, yada, yada, yada. They start to ask the ones who were faithful and alert and waiting and they were left behind. There's going to be a time when there's not, a, there's not time. And I think Jesus warns us over and over again. He gives us his word. He gives us the gospel to be aware. Right? There's going to be so many people who are busy with this life, and Jesus is going to come. And they're going to be like, man, I di- I didn't, you didn't give me a chance. And she's going to be like, dude, you were busy with this life. That's what you chose. It's a decision. You can choose this life, or you can choose Christ. You can't have both. And again, it's not that God wants us to have a miserable life here on earth. What you find out is when I put Christ first, that everything in this life is way better than what I could have done without Christ, what I could have accomplished without Christ. So it's unexpected. It's sudden. It's a springing of a trap. So he says in verse 36, Watch therefore and pray always, that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. He says, be always on the watch. There's two things that he tells us to do, always, before he comes, is to watch and to pray. To watch and to pray. And why? So that we can be counted worthy, so that we can have the strength to escape all these things. Well, what makes us worthy? Well, it's Jesus Christ. And if I put him as king, if I'm part of the kingdom of God, well, I'm watching for his return, and I'm constantly speaking to him. I'm constantly praying. Right? And so this is why? So that I can stand before the Son of Man. These are those who are caught up together with Jesus to meet God in the air. We see this again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you have a minute, turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verses 15 through 17, because we've spoken of this, but we haven't really read it yet. This speaks of those who 
who escape all these things that will come to pass. Those who escape the tribulation to come upon the earth. And again, like we saw last week, this isn't, I think it's, it's supposed to ground us. It's not supposed to scare us, but it's supposed to give us a hope. And why is it supposed to give us a hope? Well, we see in verse 20, 28 is because our redemption draws near. So, so we need to be mindful. We can't be ignorant of the things that are about to come. We need to be mindful that they're going to come. It's going to spring upon us. We want to be ready. We don't want it to come unexpectedly. And it's not of fear, but rather of hope, because we know that Christ will allow us to escape these things because we'll be standing before him and not receiving what is due because Jesus took it for us already. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 through 17 says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so there, even though we don't see the word rapture, we get the word from being caught up together to being caught up in the air. That's where we get the word rapture. Um, but that is what is speaking of here, that, that, that first part, if we want to put it this way, the first part of the second coming of Christ, where he doesn't actually make an appearance per se, but it's the beginning of him making his appearance. The church escapes. The judgment of God is poured out on the earth, which is due. But then after seven years, Jesus comes back as the conquering king to, to finalize the establishment of his kingdom. And so here in verse 37, 38, it says, In the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and he stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So during this last week in Jerusalem, Jesus is teaching. He's teaching in the temple in the daytime. He's out in the mountain, the Mount of Olives, in the evening. And what's interesting about this is what had happened in the beginning of the chapter where Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, where he basically says, I'm, I'm going to be greater than the temple. And what we see here is people weren't coming to the temple anymore for the sake of the temple itself, right? Where at first they were in adoration and they were amazed and they revered it. But now they're coming to the temple, again, not for the temple itself, but for the very fact that Jesus is there. There's this transition that's now happening, where Jesus is now the main focus, right? Because what happens here is if Jesus is in the temple, I'm coming there for Jesus and not the temple. But when Jesus is not at the temple, which we see here in the early morning, or I'm sorry, at night, when he's out in the mountain, that's where people are. So where Jesus is is where, where people go. When Jesus was somewhere else, again, that's where they went. They went where he was. So Jesus in every way is greater and better than the temple. The temple is now obsolete. And so we see that simple fact here in verses 37 through 38. It's no more about the temple. It's no more about religion. It's no more about tradition. It's no more about the things that the Jews themselves have established. But rather, let's break those down and let's, let's simplify it. Let's simplify it in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let's simplify it in the two great commandments that God has given us 
beyond the 300 that were given in the Old Testament. Let's simplify it to love God with all your heart and love others. And so they're, they're realizing this now. The temple is no longer needed. The high priest is no longer needed because Jesus is all of those things encompassed. Right? He is our high priest. We, we don't have to have a mediator anymore. He is our mediator. I don't need to bring sacrifices to the temple anymore. I don't need to bring the, the dove and the goat and the whatever because Jesus is the sacrifice. Like, he's all of it now. Everything now is encompassed in the person and the work and the deity of Jesus Christ. How amazing is that? Like, he's done it all. All we simply have to do is exactly what these people are doing is where Jesus is is where I'm going. If he's at the temple, I'm at the temple. If he's at the mount, I'm at the mount. And the beautiful thing is, which they didn't have at this very moment, which we do have, is the Spirit of God, is the helper, right? Again, Jesus says, I, I'm going to leave you, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to forsake you. I'll, I'll send you the Holy Spirit. And now we, as born-again believers, as we see in Ephesians chapter 1, is we've been given the Holy Spirit. And so God is with us wherever we go, whether that be here at church, right, our little temple, or you're in the bathroom, or you're at work, or you're at school, or you're driving. Like, I can go before the Lord anywhere and everywhere, and I can come to him. I can be watchful. I can be prayerful at any point in my day. And so Jesus is now the main focus.